Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hello, friends. Good to see you again, and welcome back to a special edition of the Bill Press Pod, coming to you all the way from Rome, Italy, where I'm spending the month of April as a visiting scholar at the wonderful American Academy of Rome. For myself and millions of Americans, what we know about Italy and Western Europe is thanks to the great reporting of NPR's legendary Silvia Pajoli, the senior European correspondent on NPR's international desk. I gotta tell you, you can't come to Rome without checking in with Silvia Pajoli. And that's especially important today with the war in Ukraine, the recent election in Hungary, and the runoff in France dominating the headlines. So we were lucky to catch up with Silvia Pajoli here in Rome to get the lay of the land in Europe and how it impacts the United States. Sylvia Pajoli, it's an honor to have you join the Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much. Uh, and what great fun to join you in the eternal city of Rome. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to join you, Bill, here in Rome. Well, thanks so much. So your, your beat for a long time has been Italy and the Vatican and Western Europe. Uh, I'd like to ask you about all three, but let's start with Western Europe. I mean, it's had its ups and downs recently, um, but... How do you judge the state of the European Union or Western Europe today? Uh, are they, these countries united? Are they strong? How do you read it? Well, I think uh, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has had the uh, unexpected result of uh, being the most unifying um, factor in, in the European Union, at least in, 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 in many years. Uh, I think I think certainly to the dismay of Vladimir Putin, who has <laughs> made no uh, secret of his desire to create disunity and division among the Europeans, as well as between, of course, the United States and, and its European allies. So I think there's uh, been an extraordinary, um, an extraordinary meeting, a meeting of minds among European leaders with, to some extent, the exception a little bit of, of Hungary, which has been hot and cold in some of its um, uh, official uh, decisions towards, uh, toward, you know, it's an ally. It's been generally an ally of Vladimir Putin, but um, mm -hmm. it has also taken some, you know, it's been up and down. But with that exception, uh, there's been extraordinary. And of course, it was extremely important, uh, the German decision, to uh, first of all, cut off uh, or suspend at least the Nord Stream uh, pipeline to Russia. Right. That was totally unexpected. Germany is the most dependent on Russian oil. And that, I think, really galvanized also the other Europeans saying, if, if Germany can do it, we can too. Uh, just yesterday, there was, I believe, yesterday, a Financial Times piece that uh, showed how much it, the Italian Prime Minister, Mario Draghi, the former head of the European Central Bank, was instrumental in getting also the United States and all the Europeans together to actually do sanctions on the Russian Central Bank, which has also been a key 
a key element mm-hmm. in the sanctions program. So I'd say, yeah, I'd say there's a there's a lot of unity right now. Uh, it'll be tested very much <laughs> in coming months because of the oil issue, the issue of dependency on oil. Um, the Europeans, both, mainly Germany and Italy at this point, do not feel they can absolutely immediately do sanctions against all uh, oil and gas uh, imports. They, they're too dependent um, on, mm-hmm. on Russian oil and gas. But for the moment, extraordinary unity, I'd say. Uh, and what role has the United States or President Biden played uh, in that? Obviously, um, a lot of awkward moments under Donald Trump, um, Joe Biden taking a, a very different approach. Has that been a positive influence? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you said it. I mean, relations with Trump, at least among the West Europeans, uh, uh, was 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 disastrous, and Biden's uh, election um, was hailed as, as he put it, "America is back." Uh, mm-hmm. There was very, very good feeling at the last, uh, at the at, at the first uh, the G seven meetings, and the, and certainly since the Ukraine invasion. No, it's it's been very good. There's, I think. For the moment, as I said, a great working together, um, both on NATO, EU relations, the United States, uh, a lot of uh, common ground there. And if there is one outlier, and you mentioned uh, Hungary, uh, here the authoritarian leader and Putin ally, uh, Viktor Orban, just reelected to a fourth term. Um, Is he the outlier or is there a fear that what happened in Hungary could be have a ripple effect to other countries. Well, you know, up until again the invasion of Ukraine, there was a kind of uh, Eastern Front, which was mainly Poland, Hungary, and the smaller country Slovenia to the south, but all run by very, very right-wing conservative governments. For the moment, again, there's been a, a tremendous reversal in Poland. Mm. Uh, which has shown itself incredibly open to welcoming Ukrainian refugees, siding with Ukraine, and uh, and uh, basically almost breaking um, certainly this sort of informal sort of alliance with Hungary. Again, how long will that last? Not clear because until the, again until the Ukraine invasion, the uh, the traditional old time partners, the Western Europeans, were very very worried about what was called a sort of Visegrad Pact. This East European, Hungary, Poland, uh, Slovakia to some extent, uh, 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 Czech Republic, and most in Slovenia, the the right wing uh, portions of Eastern Europe. It's weaker now because of Poland's being on totally taking Ukraine pro Ukraine position. So you mentioned refugees. What has been the role we've seen, as you mentioned, Poland for sure taking so many hundreds of thousands of refugees. How about Italy? Have, have, has Italy and other countries reached out in Western Europe to uh, accept refugees from Ukraine? Oh, very much so. And of course, there's been a certain amount of criticism saying, you know, uh, many of these countries were totally opposed to migrants when they were coming from, of course. <laughs> uh, from, 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 from Africa or from the Middle East, non-Europeans, Africans, Middle Easterns, uh, uh, Southeast Asians. And now all of a sudden, all these open arms for uh, those who look like us, quote unquote. Um, <laughs> so, yes, there's been, but no, there's been threat. Now, it, it, the case of Italy, which I know better, first of all, there were already a lot of Ukrainians here. Many of them were healthcare workers, they're, uh, uh, they're caretakers for the elderly. So, also, so many Ukrainians who were fleeing the, the Russians 
the invasion now uh, had family here and they have mm. rejoined. The numbers, of course, are much smaller than those in Poland. It's also much further away. But there, there are several hundred thousand. And now, again, will this welcoming openness be, will it continue for months to come when the numbers may increase by the hundreds of thousands? Again, that's part, that's probably one of Putin's uh, strategy is just, you know, create a disturbance in the, in the Europeans by creating a refugee crisis, which was also the playbook um, the Belarusians used a few months ago against Poland, uh, opening up their borders and pushing all these uh, migrants in, into Poland. So will this a uh, benevolent attitude toward Ukrainian refugees last many months ahead? I don't know. But for the moment, there's been a tremendous outpouring of help and assistance. I mean, I've everywhere I go, I see, you know, help the Ukrainians. There are people raising uh, mm -hmm. uh, food uh, caravans going there. Uh, uh, a lot of help, uh, a lot of assistance, a lot of benevolent attitude towards the situation there. Now, uh, so I've been in Rome now for a couple of weeks, and everybody I've talked to from taxi drivers on um, have good things to say about Mario Draghi, the prime minister. That's kind of unusual for Italy, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, he's a, he's an extraordinary. I mean, he he is a very he's a notch ahead atop of uh, all their uh, politicians. He, he has a, uh, an excellent international reputation. He famously saved the euro during the euro crisis with his uh, great line, uh, it, uh, the uh, ECB, the European Central Bank, will do whatever it takes to save the euro. And he did, basically printing money. But anyways, <laughs> it, it, it helped. And, and he has uh, he has a great, great prestige. And so even though he was not, uh, it's a complicated situation how he came to power. He was not elected. He's not a politician. He, the, 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 the government, the parties have all been sort of bickering and uh, fighting. And the, and the chief of state who basically, uh, the Italian president can uh, intervene when uh, he appointed Mario Draghi uh, as prime minister of what could be called a broad national coalition government. It's a very odd situation. You go, it goes from left to right with only one extreme right-wing party on the opposition. So, and they're still bickering. I mean, it's not easy. I mean, they, they can't all, but nobody right now wants early elections, um, or at least none of the, the majority of the parties don't want early mm -hmm. elections. And it would be a very difficult situation now with the situation in Ukraine. So, uh, yeah, Draghi, uh, and you know, he was the person who was put in charge, basically, of um, putting into effect the, the the large amount of money Italy was going to get from the European Union uh, post COVID. A lot of a lot of assistance. Mm. Italy mm -hmm. was one of the first countries hit by the COVID crisis. The economy has suffered tremendously. It succeeded in getting uh, pledges of large sums of money from the European Union. And Draghi will be the one in charge of basically distributing and seeing how that uh, those big funds are, are, are employed in a country that is notorious for its corruption and uh, organized crime. So uh, now, that's to be seen uh, what happens. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure you have not been on the ground covering the war in Ukraine, correct? No, absolutely. No, I have but not. But you did, uh, of course, were there in the war in the Balkans, um, what, some 20 years ago now? Um, now, it's, now it's 30, I guess. 30, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What difference do you see watching the coverage, particularly 
Uh, several journalists have been killed. Journalists have, have been very dangerous for journalists, uh, but it was also in the war in the Balkans, wasn't it? Uh, tell us about your experience and how you compare it to what people are doing today. Well, the very first big difference is, for journalists, certainly, is that uh, we did not have social media mm -hmm. at that time. And we did not even, certainly in the Bosnian War, which went from uh, let's say the first war started in 91 in Croatia, and then the Bosnian War went from 92 to 95. Throughout that period, there were no cell phones. So, wow. and, and satellite phones were still hugely big and cumbersome, and so we're not something you can carry around. By the time the Kosovo War started in 99, we had the first sort of cell phones we were working, but, but you know, there was no Wi-Fi. So, 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 Filing meant that you had to get to a landline, either at your hotel or in somebody's home. So we didn't certainly, we didn't, you couldn't do this 24-hour coverage as easily as now. And there wasn't social media. But that doesn't, but, but otherwise, there are an awful lot of uh, similarities. First of all, many, many journalists were killed. Um, they were actually in purposefully targeted in the, in the Balkan Wars by all sides, but mainly by the Serbs and the Croats. There were three sides in the Balkan Wars, at least. And then there was the Kosovo War. That's another one. But uh, And then the other thing is there was uh, just as much disinformation and manipulation of news through the, the, the various media outlets of the warring parties. And so that was also something, you know, difficult to... Uh, Fact checking was was really a challenge of of all the bat. Sometimes battles would be announced, uh, slaughters here, slaughters there, and then you found out that they didn't exist, or there were ones that you didn't know about. So that that was the similarity. The other similarity, of course, is at the actual the actual war. It's ethnic cleansing. I mean, that's what we first heard about it. Most mm. of us in in modern mm -hmm. times in the Balkan Wars, and it's pretty much exactly what. Um, what we see are the Russians are doing. It was theorized in the Balkans that even during the Second World War, uh, there was a Croatian <clears throat> uh, of the of the of the sort of pro-Nazi Eustatia state. At the time, he said, uh, "One third of Serbs we shall kill, another we shall deport, and the last we shall force to embrace the Roman Catholic religion." Uh, so that they can meld with the Croats. Now, maybe the last is not exactly in the Russian playbook, but certainly deporting and killing and expelling uh, from their homes is pretty much the same playbook as I saw in the Balkans. It's, it's, it's really quite, quite, quite shocking. And, and also the sieges. I, yesterday on television, I saw scenes of a small town that the Russians had had left um, had uh, had left from, and there were these people coming out of their cellars after a month, and I saw the same. It was like an echo of what I heard in the city of Mostar in Croatia, where the Muslim population was spent ten months, uh, something uh, ten months, uh, uh, sixty thousand Muslims spent ten months in their cellars under siege oh. from the Croats. And I was there when they came out, and I remember this. And and the echo of the of the language of the thing, the experience. It's so similar. It's it's mm. it's very very disturbing, really. No, when I hear. Uh Putin's talk about greater Russia, it reminds me of, because I was there to cover the war in Croatia, uh, it reminds me of Milosevic's chant about greater Serbia. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. The other thing is this grievances, this this constant looking back at history and this manipulation 
and distortion mm-hmm. of the events of the past to justify the actions of today. This is the same playbook, too. Right. So, Julia, enough for Western Europe. I want to talk about the Vatican. Uh, <laughs> just I'm a mile away where, as we're speaking right now. Uh, but let's take a quick break first here on the Bill Press Spot, and then we'll come back and pick up uh, on the other side. Friends, you know, I'm like you, I'm sure. Every time we see the images of Ukraine on television, people being blown out of their apartment buildings, taking shelter in basements, fleeing to the borders, families breaking up. All of us ask ourselves, oh my God, what can we do? How can we possibly help? Here's another idea. Carol and I are doing this, and I hope you will too. Uh, Let's help out the World Central Kitchen. Jose Andres and his people are on the scene like they are with every major disaster. Uh, They're on the job in Ukraine, in Poland, Moldova, in Romania, uh, helping the refugee, providing hot meals, and a whole lot more. They need our help, uh, and that's one way to get help directly to the Ukrainian people. Go to their website at wck.org, wck.org, and provide whatever help you can. Thank you. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with a very special guest today, senior European correspondent for NPR's International Desk for a long time. Uh, you know her, you hear her voice, you hear her reports from Europe and Italy uh, Sylvia, and the Vatican, Sylvia Pajoli. Sylvia, again, so welcome back. A, a lot of people don't realize, but certainly you do, when you walk into the Vatican, you're actually leaving Italy and walking into um, another whole country, right? With its own rules, its own customs, and its own way of doing things. That's true. Absolutely. Well, it's, 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 a, it's called the city-state, the Vatican city-state. And uh, it has uh, an observer status at the United Nations. Uh, and it does, it does not have its own currency, but it has its own stamps. And, uh, and, and Vatican City uh, uh, employees, uh, residents have their own passport. So, so how many popes have you covered? And now Pope Francis. And um, how accessible are they to reporters? 
Not at all. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we complain all the time at the White House, right? The president's not, uh, not accessible enough. I wonder. It's, it's even more difficult, right, to get a yeah. question uh, to not the Pope. No, the, the, one, the one time, and it's, it was started, I believe, by John Paul II. It's now under Francis. When he does international trips, the Vatican correspondents accredited to, to follow him on the— uh, uh, travel with him on the plane. On the return, he always gives a press conference. That's the one time when reporters, and that's one of the, the the sort of thrills about getting on a papal flight is because you get to really, you know, we get to ask him questions. Does he walk down the aisle and just stand in the aisle? He comes into the uh, economy section where we are <laughs> and, he sta- and he's at, at the front and he has a mm-hmm. microphone, and those of ah. us who are radio and TV, we are already wired, and we can record everything he says. And um, and generally, uh, among the group, the group of reporters are sort of divided into language groups: English, Italian, French, mm-hmm. German, and Spanish. And each sort of language group um, presents a few questions. Let's say uh-huh. so we have it. It's it's sort of we try. It, it's not one of these screaming, yelling, try to get over. You know, it's all much more. Uh, the, the big fights are among the reporters about which questions to ask because we know we have a limited time and so. But yeah. um, but he he has amazing stamina. I mean, this man is eighty five years old. He's uh, got problem. He's got sci- sciatica and he has you know a trick knee. But he generally stands there for even more than an hour with his microphone Ooh. and takes questions in uh, in Italian mostly and uh, sometimes and in Spanish, in his native Spanish. Uh, does he ever make news? Often does. I think the very first trip he took was the probably the, the biggest news he made was when he was on his return flight. I think it was just a, a few months after he was elected uh, on his return flight from Brazil. Uh, he was asked uh, about um, about gays and he said, who am I to judge? If uh, if a right. person is believes in God and uh, you know says it's, 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 I'm who uh, who am I to judge if someone is gay and searches for the Lord and has goodwill who am I to judge that was a pretty revolutionary statement when his <laughs> predecessor uh, Benedict as when he was still cardinal uh, and the Vatican enforcer of doctrine he had declared um, that uh, homosexuality was not a sin but an objective disorder with a strong tendency towards mm. intrinsic moral evil. So I'd say that that was a pretty dramatic switch, and uh, and it definitely made news, yeah. What's his next trip? Uh, he likes, By the way, he likes to travel, doesn't he? he? He's done a lot of international travel. Well, we, we understand that as Cardinal, he did not. He did not travel much. Uh, he was not a big traveler. And but what he his in, what he likes and he has said it many times is he likes to go to the peripheries of the world. He goes where there are small Catholic communities that maybe feel that they've been forgotten. Uh, one of the most memorable trips was just a little over a year ago. I was on it when we went to Iraq, and he went to northern Iraq to visit these small Christian communities that had been devastated by ISIS. Really horrible, horrible horrible persecution and murders and slaughter. And these are some of the oldest Christian communities in the world. They're there. They date from the time of the apostles. And that's a sign, you know, when he goes to these parts, he's gone to countries that have very uh, small Christian uh, populations, but where there are still uh, Christian communities. And he wants to, he, this is a signal. He's gone to, for example, to very few European countries, which one would expect, which are predominantly Christian or Catholic. 
what is this? What what's the next trip? And uh, have you signed up? Uh, we don't. Oh, yeah, there is a next trip, but it, we haven't been asked to sign up yet. Oh. He's going in July, uh, right in the middle of summer, uh, to South Sudan and Congo. Wow, that's going to be not, a very again. You would not think of that as a place a Catholic pope would go, right? No, but he was. He's been very much involved in the peace process. Uh, he invited last year the the Sudanese leaders to the Vatican. He even got down on his uh, got down on the floor and kissed their uh, feet. Uh, you can you can imagine mm. that was quite extraordinary. So wherever there's been strife. And uh, and and war and you know divisions. He tries to go. the The big one would be we've been asking, will he? You know, would he go to Ukraine? And on uh, you asked, does he make news? The last, just the other day, returning from Malta, he said there was they're thinking about a possibility of a visit to Kiev, but um, most of us think that that's pretty difficult at this point. I don't know if that could come off right now. Uh, very difficult. You mentioned John Paul II. I've seen so many. Uh, shrines, if you will, to John Paul II in Rome. Um, his funeral was a moment that certainly that you covered extensively for NPR. Uh, there's never been one like that in modern times, has there? Not to my knowledge, absolutely not. I, I remember there was talk that three million people came to Rome over a period of about three or four days uh, after he died, and they were all lined up in uh, in St. Peter's Square and in the long, big, long avenue, Via della Conciliazione, that leads from the River Tiber up to, to, to St. Peter's Square. It was one of them. <laughs> I've never seen anything like that in my life. Uh, they came mostly from Europe, from Poland, of course, but, you know, from all over. And uh, it was really, yeah, it was extraordinary. Uh, and he was, uh, he's now a saint, uh, has been canonized a saint by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, that happened pretty fast. Isn't that sort of a historic record too? Yes. In fact, uh, already during the funeral, there were these chants of many constant chants, <laughs> Santo Subito, make him a saint immediately. <laughs> and his successor, Pope Benedict, formerly Joseph Ratzinger, who had been the theological watchdog under uh, mm -hmm. John Paul II, uh, did exactly that. He, uh, he, he beatified and had him canonized very quickly. And yeah, I think it was a record time. He sort of rushed him through the way Mitch McConnell rushed Amy Coney Barrett through the Supreme Court. I couldn't help but think of that. <laughs> so, Sylvia, how long have you, let's talk a little bit about Sylvia Pajoli. How long have you been at NPR now? Uh, this year uh, marks 40 years. Wow. Yeah. Whoa. Congratulations. How, how'd you get started? In, in Europe, in Italy? or Yeah. Or yeah. Uh, well, actually, it's funny. Um, I had, uh, uh, after college, I came to Rome on a Fulbright scholarship after college, and uh, NPR did not exist when I uh, uh, mm. left. And <laughs> um, I, 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 I went back to the States for a year. Um, in the early 80s, uh, my husband had a fellowship. He was a journalist. He had a fellowship there. And one of his um, co-fellows was an NPR reporter named Margot Adler, who was a fantastic person. And I got to know NPR through her, and we became very good friends. And so when I went back to Rome, I asked if they needed somebody to be a stringer, and uh, they didn't have anybody. So I started, and that's how I started working with NPR. I started stringing from, from Rome. 
and then uh, started traveling. <laughs> and there they say, and the rest is history, as they say. Um, what's what's the biggest story that you remember that you uh, or the, was the most exciting for you, or one or two? Oh, oh that's hard. Um, well, the biggest certainly probably were in the you know were the Balkan. I mean, ten years of covering the demise of Yugoslavia. The collapse of Yugoslavia yeah. was certainly the biggest thing, probably, um, I covered. Um, yeah, I think what I did also, one of the I, one of the things I was very much, I'm proud of, I, I, I did was very early on, um, I did a lot of series in parts of Western Europe on the whole issue of migration, long before people were talking about these great influxes of migration, but the issue about, you know, large... Um, uh, Muslim populations in France, in Britain, in Germany, and uh, and how difficult it was for these nation states, these sort of that were born as mono-ethnic societies, the whole idea of trying to understand and the, the difficult, and you know, which is at the basis of a lot of all these right-wing anti-immigration movements now uh, that are seeping through parts of Europe. And um, it was very interesting. I got to know a lot about the issues in, in uh, the, the issue in France with many from the Mag- uh, immigrants from the Maghreb, the whole and the whole dilemmas and national debates over these uh, these issues, which are now have been overwhelmed by the influx of, of, of migrants from from from, you know, coming from Africa and from Eastern uh, from Southeast Asia. But uh, I started doing that in the late 90s. And um, I think that was one of, for me, it was one of the most uh, important stories that I've covered. And, and and recently, it seems there's been a um, export of Trumpism to to Western Europe or to me, certainly Eastern Europe. But what I hear you're saying, it, it didn't start with Trump, but it maybe it found some some roots here in Europe that it, that people identified with, right? Particularly the anti-immigration yeah. part of, part of it. There was a moment in in Italy. Two three years ago, um, when uh, one of these uh, right wing parties, or I should say, two two sort of right wing parties, gained a lot and became formed a government together. Well, the sort of a maverick five star movement, and then the very very right wing uh, League party, very anti immigrant, and that was um, it was a very bad time. That was like 2018, 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, but I, I think their popularity has declined a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. And I mean, it's not over. But right. um, well, everybody now, what will everybody be watching is what happens in France. There's going to be elections and the polls show it's going to be a tight race between Macron and uh, Marianne Le Pen. If she wins, that'll change everything. Uh, so one uh, one other note about NPR, which uh, I was surprised to find when I did a little uh, googling of <laughs> uh, of uh, Sylvia Pajoli, is you were a frequent guest on Car Talk of all programs. I mean, <laughs> how did that get started? I mean, uh, what <laughs> I don't, I didn't see of you as a natural guest uh, with uh, click click and clack. Yeah, no, I was not a guest. I was a constant. Uh, oh. I, from what I understand, 
a topic of conversation <laughs> oh, okay. that they use. No, you know, it's so funny because uh, Click and Clack, uh, the Magliacci brothers, were at, are also from my hometown, which is Cambridge, Massachusetts. And oh, so yeah. I think we had a, there was, we had a, we had a feeling. No, they were wonderful guys. They were terrific. And their show was a wonderful show. And uh, I have a very, very fond memory of them. And Carto. Uh, well, it was certainly my favorite program on NPR. I must admit, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I and I and I did I did see at some little ad that you did for the program where you called it my favorite program yourself. Yeah. So yeah. I, <laughs> they they were great, and I and I'm sure th yeah. they certainly saw Sylvia Pajoli right as a as a partner, right? Yes, an American I think so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, from from Cambridge. No, they were right. great. Sylvia, it's been so great talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us here on the Bill Press Pod. I just have one favor to ask you. Can you um, tell us goodbye the way you normally say <laughs> goodbye on NPR? <laughs> sure. First of all, thank you for having me. It was a it was great fun. And uh, this is Sylvia Poldroli in Rome. Thank you, Sylvia. Talk to you again soon. Take care. Bye bye. And that's it from Rome with Sylvia Pajoli. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, we'll be back on Thursday this week with a roundtable from Washington. Then I'll be back next Tuesday from Rome with an exclusive interview with Ambassador Cindy McCain, who now serves in the extremely important post of America's ambassador to the United Nations Agencies for Food and Agriculture. It has a lot to do with feeding the refugees coming from Ukraine. Until then... Take care of yourself, and from Rome, arrivederci, ciao.